0: If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, please look in the seat, or at the seats in front of you. Underneath, there are Bibles strategically placed. Please uh, open one if you don't have one. We're going to be looking at the Scriptures together this morning. We'll be in Jonah chapter 2 primarily. But when you find Jonah 2, would you please turn to the right a few pages and go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. So put a finger in Jonah 2, and then find Matthew 12. Matthew 12, will be looking at verses 38 to 41. Now at this point, in the Gospel of Matthew... Jesus Christ has been teaching with great authority. He has performed extraordinary miracles. I mean, up until this point, He has cast out demons. He has healed a leper. He made a blind man to see. He made a paralytic walk. And He even raised a young girl from the dead. These miracles were performed in the sight of many, even in the sight of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so, with that in mind, what the Pharisees ask for next is astonishing. Look at Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Never mind that Jesus has performed extraordinary miracles in the sight of the Pharisees already. They ask for another sign. They want something bigger, something more. And so Jesus says, you want a sign? You want a miracle? You remember Jonah, he was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, and he lives to tell the tale. Well, I'll do you one better. The Son of Man will spend three days and three nights dead in a grave, and he will rise again. And you remember Nineveh, O Pharisees, that great wicked pagan nation that repented at the preaching of a prophet who rose from a fish. Well, they're going to shake their heads at you on judgment day because you won't believe the greater prophet who rose from the grave. See, we left Jonah last week in the belly of a fish. And if you look back at Jonah chapter 1, the last verse in that chapter, verse 17, says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, to Israel at the time of this writing, the writing of Jonah, maybe this number seems insignificant. But we... On this side of Jesus' resurrection, and seeing the explicit references in Matthew chapter 12, and Jesus says it again in Matthew 16, we understand Jonah was a type. That is, he was an Old Testament person who foreshadows and points us forward to a greater person. In the New Testament. And that greater person is Jesus Christ, the greater prophet who performs the greater miracle. This is, in in the Old Testament, one of the most explicit illustrations of the resurrection that is to come. Jonah, who knew it? Spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish would foretell, foreshadow, Jesus Christ spending three days, three nights, in a grave and rising from the dead. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? Do you believe in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning? You must. You must. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is dead. It is so essential to our faith. It's an essential tenet of the gospel that we preach. We must preach Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. And it has incredible implications for your life today, Christian. If Christ is risen from the dead, so have you. Risen from the dead, no longer living in that old life that is under the dominion of sin, but you are raised to new life with Christ. See, we can't pass Jonah 1.17 without talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's where I wanted to start this morning. Really, I think that chapter 2 could start with verse 17 of chapter 1. The chapter divisions are not inspired in Scripture. They're just ways that scribes have break, broken up the text for us. I think we could have started with Jonah going into the belly, and then you see at the end of chapter 2, Jonah goes out of the belly. So I don't know. I thought that that would be better. But other scribes before me disagree. Anyways, in chapter 2, we find Jonah praying. So that's what I've titled chapter 2 praying. We saw in the previous message, previous chapter, Jonah was running, running. So what events led to, let's do a brief review, what events led to Jonah being in the belly of a fish? Well, we remember that at the very beginning of the story, God called Jonah. It was an explicit call. It was specific. Go to Nineveh, that great and wicked city, and call out Against him, or against them. Nineveh at the time, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was indeed a great city filled with ruthless, violent people. Jonah knew that these people would eventually be used by God to bring judgment upon his people, Israel, and so Jonah wanted nothing to do with them. And so, what does Jonah do? Jonah runs. And he, in fact, runs in the exact opposite direction of where God told him to go. He emphatically, we see this in the text, runs from the presence of God, from walking in right relationship, walking in God's favor. And we relate to Jonah because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray according to our own way. Sin, disobedience, is not only breaking God's law, but it is breaking relationship with Him. It's it's breaking God's heart. And we see that illustrated in Jonah's life, running away. God could have let Jonah go. He could have. But did He? No, He didn't. Jonah runs, and God pursues. God goes after him. He doesn't let him go. And this speaks volumes to the character of God. God disciplines those whom he loves. He will use corrective measures to bring his children back to repentance. And so he hurls a storm to stop Jonah in his tracks. He uses pagan sailors to call Jonah out in his sin. He even allows Jonah to think that he can kill himself by being thrown overboard. But even then, God doesn't let him go. He scoops him up with a fish that he appointed. And so we see God's unrelenting love displayed in the book of Jonah. And we'll see more illustrations of his love throughout the rest of the book. And then all this drama between the sailors and the Jonah, or just the sailors and the Jonah, that we see in chapter 1, this was not in vain because God used it to save the sailors. We saw that the mariners worship. God saves them. They they went from superstitious, polytheistic, fearful pagans to committed, monotheistic, God-fearing Christians in just a matter of maybe minutes, hours. God saves whoever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, and however he wants. Because remember, the theme of Jonah is what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we're reminded of this point over and over and over again. And so we find Jonah in the belly of a fish, and he prays. And that's the majority of the content in chapter 2. So let's walk through this prayer and learn lessons from Jonah's prayer. We can learn something from seeing how Jonah prays. And so point number one, the first lesson we learn from Jonah's prayer is that God hears and he answers. God hears and answers. Look again at Jonah 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Do you remember who Jonah was running from last chapter? He was running from who? From the presence of the Lord. Now, who is he turning to? The Lord his God. Finally, Jonah's heart has turned. We see a difference in Jonah's heart as he turns to the Lord, not from him. And what is the content of his prayer? We jump right into verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And did God answer? Or did God give him the passive-aggressive silent treatment? Oh no, Jonah, you need to stew in this a little bit longer, all right? Did he send Jonah to voicemail saying, hey, I'll call back later when I've, when I've really thought this through. No, no, no. What, is, what does God do? He answers. He hears and he answers. Jonah's prayer. This is amazing. The undeserved kindness of God that He would grant Jonah an audience. That He would restore His presence to Jonah. Even after all Jonah had done. Jonah had explicitly run from the presence of God. His disobedience took him to the point of being so stubborn, he was willing to die. And then in desperation, he finally, his heart turns and he remembers the Lord and he calls out to Him and God quickly responds. Oh, this is a lesson for us. When we've taken our sins so far, when we're in desperate situations, even if our own sin has made us desperate, We call to the Lord and we know that He hears and that He answers the prayers of the brokenhearted. Psalm 121 says, In my distress, I call to the Lord and He answered me. He answers. And we know that whenever we call out to God, we always call out from a place of great need and desperation. Because we're all We're all sinners. We've all, like Jonah, gone astray. And so, every call to God is one from weakness, one from a place of sin, knowing we don't deserve His audience, we don't deserve His presence, yet He listens to us, He grants His ear to hear and to answer I mean, Jonah made this mess. The Lord could have said, you know what, you made your bed, Jonah, now lie in it. But God doesn't do that with him. He hears and He answers. Christian, this is a great comfort to start with. That in your distress, in your great moment of need, even at the bottom of your own pit of sin, if you would just turn your heart to the Lord in prayer... He hears and answers. I mean, the psalmist says in Psalm sixty six twenty, "Blessed be God, praise God, because He's not rejected my prayer, or removed His steadfast love from me." In Second Chronicles chapter seven verse fourteen, God says this: "If my people, who are called by my name, if they would just humble themselves and pray." and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Oh, we need to humble ourselves and turn quickly to God, even in our desperate state. See, what we have believed is this lie that when we get ourselves into that kind of desperate situation, we gotta somehow climb out of it ourselves before we go to God. We need to make ourselves look good. I need to have a good day before I go to the go to God in prayer. Well, I need to have a, you know, I need to pull myself together. I can't go to God looking like this. What's he gonna think? I'm covered in sin. I'm, i I've made a huge mess. So I need to clean it up. I need to do some good things to prove to God that I I really am sorry. No. Run quickly to God, your Savior. Run quickly to God in prayer. Admit your guilt. Admit your shame. Confess your sin. And cry to Him for help. Cry to Him for restoration. Wherever you are, when you fail, no matter the mess you've made, go quickly to God even when you know you've sinned and gone far away from Him. Turn quickly to God in prayer. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't try to clean yourself up. Go to the Lord. First Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. God hears and answers. Even the sinner's prayer. You know, we see something has changed in Jonah's attitude. He went from running from God to running to the Lord in prayer. I mean, we remember Jonah walking calmly into the hole of this ship. He just kept going down, he was even sleeping during the storm. There was this kind of stubborn, prideful resolve. We remember him asking to be thrown overboard so that he can still get his way and die rather than obey God. And now we see him humble. We see him desperate, deeply troubled, afraid. Why? Why? What happened in the heart of Jonah? This leads us to point number two. God hears and answers our prayer. And then point number two, God lets us down. God lets us down. God sometimes takes us to a breaking point in order that we might turn and trust in Him. This prayer of Jonah is written in poetic form. There's great poetry in this prayer, and and great imagery. It's aquatic. It's watery. It describes Jonah's descent, but it's also poetic, symbolizing not only Jonah's sinking in the sea, but going further and further away from God. And it's actually formatted in in what's called a chiasm. Verses 2 through 6, and I tried to show you that through the PowerPoint 2 through 6 forms a chiasm. That's kind of like a pyramid structure. The outside verses have parallelism and parallelism. And then as you you move toward that middle verse, you see a climax, the main point that the author is trying to make. So if you look at the most outside verses, 2 and verse 6, they have parallel themes, and that is a desperate depth. A desperate depth. Jonah says, "I, I called out of my distress... I called out of the belly of Sheol. Verse 2. Verse 6. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That's desperate depths. And then if we look at verses 3 and 5, they also have parallel themes of sinking in the sea. Sinking in the sea. Verse 3. The You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood Surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. And then the centerpiece of the chiasm, what Jonah is trying to emphasize is this. Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's what this. Imagery is pointing towards. That's the illustration. Not only of Jonah physically sinking in water, but Jonah being driven from the presence of God. This is what it feels like. Running from God, being driven away from the presence of God, feels like you're sinking and drowning in the ocean. And Jonah did both. <laughs> Was actually drowning in and spiritually drowning as he was driven away from the sight of his God. This is ultimate despair. Have you been there? Have you been there in your life? Been to the point of ultimate despair? Feeling like you are so far from God. And it's your own fault. It was your own sin that left you there. You have to understand something. Sin always leads to desperation and death. Sin always leads to desperation and death. Remember what we said last week. The way of sin is this. You pay the fare and you never get to where you're going. Jonah paid the fare to go to Tarshish and he never got there. What a great illustration of sin. Sin promises you happiness. Sin promises you fulfillment and pleasure forever, but it never provides. It always falls short. And it ends up costing you everything. Sin leads to desperation and death, but here's the kicker. Here's what's incredible about Jonah's descent. Who let him down? Who does Jonah recognize in his prayer that is responsible for allowing him to get to such depths? Look back at the text. Look at verse 3. You cast me into the deep. Who is he talking to? God. Your waves and your billows passed over me. I, was dri- I am driven away from your sight. That's in the passive. Somebody was driving me away. And who was that somebody? It was the Lord. Sovereignly allowing Jonah to get to his breaking point. To get to ultimate desperation. This is a paradox of Sovereignty and responsibility here we see in the text. Ultimately, God is sovereign even over your suffering. He's in control over it all. He makes the lots to fall on Jonah. He uses Jonah's suicide plan to eventually restore him and save him. He he allows Jonah to be swallowed by a fish in the sea first. He brought Jonah to this low point. Yet... Jonah is responsible for his sin, and these are the natural consequences of them. It's his own fault that he's at this all-time low. He can't blame God for his sin. He made these decisions and ran far, far away from God to the point of despair and death. So sin leads to despair and death. That's the end of the rope for the sinner. Yet sometimes God leads and uses that to draw the sinner to himself. Jonah was extremely close to death's door. He saw it. And finally he became desperate. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, that's when I remembered the Lord. Why did God allow Jonah to get to the point of desperation? Why did God allow Jonah to get to the almost to death's door, almost to drowning? So that, verse 7, he would remember the Lord. So that God could save him. See, it literally took rock bottom, ocean floor bottom, for Jonah to become desperate and cry out to God. Write this down. Desperation and supplication lead to salvation. Desperation and supplication lead to salvation. God must bring you low in order to bring you up. I'm reminded of the prodigal son. Remember the story? He he took his inheritance from his father, basically wishing his father to be dead. And he ran and he squandered all of the inheritance in loose living, gambling, prostitutes, earthly and worldly pleasures. And at the end of it all, his sin led him to a pig pen. And he was about to eat food out of a pig's trough because he didn't have enough money to spend on food. That's low. Yet, when did the prodigal son remember? At that point. He remembers who? His father. See, the Lord allowed or took him to that point of desperation So that he would cry out, recognizing his great need for a Savior. The Lord brings us low in order to bring us up. And that's sometimes what it takes. Sometimes it takes a storm in your life. Trouble. Consequences. Sinking. Drowning. Rock bottom. (laughs) To come to grips with your sin. And remember the Lord. Jonah was, as the song says, sweetly broken. He had to be. This is where his sin left him. Broken hearted and crushed. And then listen to these verses. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted, And He saves the crushed in spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Understand this this morning. You don't enter the kingdom of heaven with your chest out, your head held high, or any ounce of self-righteousness, arrogance, boasting, or pride. It's not how you get to heaven. You enter the kingdom of heaven with your head down low, beating your chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You enter the kingdom of heaven, a blind man crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. You enter the kingdom of heaven a beggar on your hands and knees saying, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. You enter the kingdom of heaven broken, desperate. Because it's only the sick who recognize their need for a physician. And it's only the sinner who recognizes their need for a Savior. Savior. Have you been there? Have you been there? Absolutely desperate. Recognize I'm sick with sin and I desperately need a Savior. That's the point every person has to get to. And that's the point that God takes every person to who comes to Christ for salvation, turns to God in repentance and faith. God lets us down, and that's good. But God doesn't let us down to leave us down. God lets us down to point number three, bring us up. God lets us down and God brings us up. He's absolutely in control here. And Jonah recognizes that. At Jonah's lowest point, he remembers the Lord and the Lord brought him up. Look at the second half of verse six. Well, let's read the first half first because you got to go down in order to come up. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. God saved him. God saved Jonah. Physically, with a fish. Spiritually, I believe this prayer is evidence of Jonah's genuine faith in God. Even though he has a lot more to learn, and we're going to see more ugly from Jonah, I don't believe an unbeliever can articulate this kind of prayer. That salvation belongs to the Lord and Him alone. This is similar to the prayer in uh, Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, "I I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up. From the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. By whose hand was Jonah brought low? The Lord his God. And by whose hand was Jonah brought up? The Lord is God. God. God saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord and Him alone. Jonah did nothing to earn his salvation. He did nothing. There's nothing he could offer God as he's sinking in the ocean, drowning. <laughs> Yet, just a simple cry of desperation, a cry for help. In Jonah uh, 2 4, you look at this verse, and, and Jonah recognizes the holiness of God. He says in verse 4 Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. David writes in Psalm 3, 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. See, both Jonah and David recognize and they're mindful of the holiness of God. What does it mean that God is holy? It means that God is set apart. God is far above us in His perfection. He's far beyond our reach. Nothing David or Jonah or any of us do earns us an audience with Holy God. Nothing we can do makes our, our presence or sorry, our prayers be able to go into His presence. He's holy. His temple where his presence resides is holy, the holy of holies. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Nothing we do can make ourselves holy. We're all, like David said, stuck in a miry bog. We're at the bottom of a well that we cannot climb out of. It is only by the grace and mercy of God that we can be saved. Only by God's mercy and grace could Jonah be saved from the pit that he put himself in. And the same description is used of our salvation. We see the same description used in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles? A fast turn over to Ephesians 2. Do you remember this passage? When we went through the book of Ephesians? This illustration of us being brought up, saved, out of this pit of death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. This is your salvation, Christian. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Not mostly dead, you were dead dead. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power, the air, the spirit, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were sick with sin, desperate and dead. Can't save ourselves, can't make ourselves alive. We have no right in this position to enter God's holy temple or for our prayers to even be heard by God in His holy hill. But what happened? Verse 4, But God. But God. Why? Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Unconditional love. What did He do? Even when we were dead, In our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How is it, Christian, that you can walk into the presence of God and make your requests known? How is it, Christian, that you are seen as one who's seated at the right hand of Christ? an inheritor, uh, an heir of the promises to come. It's not by your righteousness. It's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's God's hand that brought you up. He alone saves salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His work, and it's His glory. I think of the songs, There's nothing in, in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. He paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, yet He washed it white as snow. The means of salvation for Jonah was a a fish, and his faith was in God, God His Savior. We see on this side of the Lord Jesus Christ that the way of salvation is is by Him, Jesus Christ. He made a way for us to be right with holy God. Jesus came to this earth. He lived the righteous life we couldn't live. He died on the cross in our place, making an atoning sacrifice. And He didn't stay dead. No, Jonah Jonah points forward to the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And in Him we could be made alive. In Him we are blameless, holy, by faith in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. I wonder, I ask, if you have a testimony of God bringing you up. Have you been brought up by God? Brought out of that pit of sin that we have all put ourselves in? Have you been made alive by Jesus Christ today? Has God used desperate circumstances in your life to bring you to saving faith in Him and Him alone? We see that evident in Jonah's life and his prayer. Finally, point number four, really the summary of it all, is this, God saves. God saves. Look at verse 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. First of all, you have to see that idolaters turn on love. Isn't that ironic? A lot of people turn from God because they are pursuing love from someone else or something else. Or I want to feel that experience of love from this significant other. I want to find acceptance from people before I find acceptance with God. And so it's ironic that they turn to other loves but in that action they're turning from the hased love of God. That is the steadfast love of God. That's described here in Jonah 2. This Hebrew word hased and I'm not even saying it right because you know Hebrew is so difficult to pronounce. It's difficult to translate as well this word this refers to God's steadfast love, His covenant love for His chosen people. To be covered in Hesed is to be blessed, to be walking with God. This was exactly what Jonah was running from. He was running from the presence of God, running from his Hesed and his idolatry. Yet God in His mercy turned him back. And Jonah just recognizes from his own testimony. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they're running from God's steadfast love. Look at what you're running from. The love of God. Have you interacted with a person who has so clearly and blatantly forsook the love of God? I remember when I first became a Christian, the Lord brought a, a friend into my life. His name was Kyle. And I was a new believer. I was very excited about the Lord and excited to share the gospel with with everybody. And so the Lord brought this new friend into my life and I was sharing the gospel with him. Long story short for Kyle, Kyle was in a life-threatening accident on his motorcycle. He was uh, put into a coma for a couple of weeks and they thought he was going to lose his life. He went into emergency surgery and the doctors told his parents, your son is going to die. It wasn't his fault. This lady had pulled out in front of him. And he went over the windshield and tremendous damage. But by the mercy and grace of God, he lived. He survived. And uh, in his recovery, he received a a big chunk of change (laughs) because of the litigation and the lawsuit. In fact, Kyle was an instant millionaire after this accident. And by God's grace, the Doctor told him, hey, you'll live a long, healthy, happy life. Just don't go on roller coasters because your, your head's been shaken up a little bit. So he did. He had his life back and he had a lot of money. And I met Kyle at this point. The Lord brought him into my life. And it seemed like at the beginning of our relationship that Kyle was interested in spiritual things. He was interested in going to church. And I kept telling him, maybe the Lord has used these grave circumstances in your life. He's given you a second chance physically. Turn and live your life for Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ who will bring ultimate fulfillment in your life. This money won't do that for you. Well, as our relationship grew and over time, it became evident that Kyle wanted the things of the world and not the Lord. He started to buy cars, houses, things, and started to engage in worldly pleasures, girls, and everything else. And it started to decline and decline and decline. And I remember just keep, I kept calling him to repentance. I kept calling him to believe in Jesus who is the only one who will ultimately satisfy him. And I remember him one day, we were sitting in his brand new Corvette and uh, he looked at me and he said, Morgan, I just can't. I want these things more than I want Jesus. And it was a heartbreaking conversation, but it became, he just so brashly, Said, "I don't want the love of God. I want the love of the world." Oh, heartbreaking. I pray that the Lord would continue to work in his heart, and that maybe those seeds sown long ago would produce genuine faith. But it was the first time in my Christian life seeing somebody actually turn from the hased love of God, and it's heartbreaking. Don't do that. Don't turn. Or forsake the steadfast love of God. This is the sad end for the idolater. No love. But not Jonah. Jonah says in verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. By God's grace and mercy, thank you God that that's not me. That's what all of us should say. And we learn just from this simple verse that gratitude drives obedience in the Christian's life. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by being obedient to God, but salvation produces works. Salvation produces obedience, and it did in Jonah's life. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I will fulfill my duty as prophet because I'm so grateful and thankful. For you saving me. As I rush to conclude here, we see that phrase, the theme here salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the theme of the book of Jonah. It's the theme that keeps us going through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And at this point of the story, I just want to note something. Jonah says this in reference to his own salvation. You see that in verse 9? But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's talking about his own salvation. What he doesn't see yet, and what we will see, is that, yes indeed, salvation belongs to the Lord, and he's going to save others. And Jonah doesn't like that very much. (laughs) We'll see that when God saves, namely, Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites, he sings a different tune. Jonah's sanctification is not yet complete. He's got a lot of learning and growing to do, and Jonah's still a sinner, and we see some ugliness in chapter 4. But nonetheless, the statement is true, isn't it? Salvation belongs to the Lord. He does it. It ultimately comes from Him, through Him, and to Him. And this is a repeated theme throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 3, eight. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people. It is exclusively to God, no one else. Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord, besides me there's no Savior. Hosea 13, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. There is no Savior outside of God. Finally, Revelation 7, 9-10, through 10. this is an incredible passage. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus Christ. They were clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. To our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you see Nineveh in there? Nineveh's in that passage. All nations, all tribes, even those in Nineveh, salvation belongs to our God. God alone saves, it's His decision. God saves again, however, whoever, wherever, and whenever He wants. If you're not saved, if you've not been raised to new life in Christ, if you've not yet believed, would you turn to Him today? Trust in God, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, His Son, whom He sent to die on the cross for you? And Christian, we with Jonah say with great thanksgiving and gratitude, thank you for saving me and pulling my life out of the pit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this prayer from Jonah that we see that so explicitly points and glorifies you. God, you are the one who let us down so that we might see the desperation of our sin and where it leads. So that we would turn to you and believe and then, God, you bring us up. You save, God. Salvation belongs to you. I pray for the people in this room who are not yet saved. Pray that you would draw them to yourself right now. They would confess and repent from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Pray that you'd stir them to talk to somebody after service today. God, we just ask also for us as believers who are so thankful and grateful for our salvation that you would continue to stir up and warm our hearts because of what you've done for us. Help us to be evangelistic. Help us to love one another with great love because you've so loved us. We pray that you would do this in our hearts by your strength. Just use us, Lord, according to, to glorify you and to proclaim your name in Jesus' name. Amen.